0: You are listening to Sing Amen, Ministering Through Music. I am Jennifer Kerr Budziak and welcome to our podcast. The song you just heard an excerpt of was written in, I believe, 1977 by a young man barely out of his teens. It was the very first liturgical song David Haas ever wrote, and it was the one that sort of opened the floodgates to the hundreds of songs that would, over the next several decades, find their way into churches and hymnals all over the world and onto the lips of the people of God. This past January, GIA released David Haas's book, I Will Bring You Home, Songs of Prayer, Stories of Faith. It's an amazing volume, telling the stories behind more than 130 of his best love songs. But looked at altogether, the book is not just about the songs. It tells the story of a life, of a vocation and a calling, um, an autobiography in music, if you will. It also gives the reader a firsthand look at music in the church after the Second Vatican Council, who the people were, what it was like to live and work and compose in that time, all seen and told through the lens of one person who, almost to his own surprise, found himself on the front lines of the shifting culture. In my capacity as an editor at GIA, I was lucky enough to get to work with David on the book, and it was really fun getting to walk through these stories and get to know David better through them. By the time you finish, you'll feel like you're listening to an old friend. So to break in here a little commercial, Um, I don't like to do these often, but this one's important. Please don't forget to register for GIA's Fall Institute taking place in Chicago just next week, October 11th through 13th. David will be there speaking. And he and Lori True and Zach Stahowski will be giving a concert on Thursday night, October eleventh, entitled God Will Delight. You won't want to miss it, and you won't want to miss all of the other wonderful speakers we have coming, people like Michael Jonkus and James Jordan, Ola Yellow. Um uh, we're still taking registrations, so head over to the institute website at institute.giamusic.com and come join us. Okay, end of commercial. So Uh, A few months ago, David was at GIA on one of his fairly frequent visits there, and he was kind enough to sit down and have a conversation with me. It was great talking with him. I joked afterwards that I thought we might have two podcasts worth of stuff recorded. And even though at the time it was a Menta's joke, it actually turned out to be true. So this is part one of a two-part podcast with David Haas. We'll release part two in two weeks. The first part is a more general conversation about David's life and development as a composer, the paths that led him to doing what he now does, just his overall thoughts and approach to composing, things like that. Part 2 we'll delve more deeply into the more specific question of the spiritual, mental, emotional self-care for musicians. How do we keep going? How do we manage our work-life balance? How do we avoid burnout? I mean, let's face it, it is not an easy life, but we continue to believe that what we do is important and that we are needed in the vineyard. So please tune in in two weeks for that conversation. And in the meantime, let's dive into part one. And here's David Haas. Well, it feels really strange for me to be saying to David Haas, welcome to GIA, because you've been around here at a part of things way, way, way longer than I have, so kind of a fixture on here. But welcome to GIA.
1: Oh, it's always great being here. Well,
0: it's just great having you here. I was hoping I can kind of get you to tell us some of the stories and sure. just kind of start, and obviously since I worked on the book with you, I know this, but how did, how did you get into mu- church music? How did this find you?
1: I, um, I grew up in a musical family. And uh, so both music and church were a part of my parents' upbringing. My father uh, was an organist, and when he was in the army during the Korean War, he was a chaplain's assistant. So he played organ not only for the Catholic services, but for all the other, including Jewish services. I mean, he just, so he was in that world, and his uh, great uncle was an organist and so forth, and his dad was a violinist. My mother, um, again, was a musician, they both studied music in college. My mother had the distinct um, um, experience of teaching singing to the Carmelite sisters who were cloistered up in Traverse City, Michigan. She was one of the few people who were allowed beyond the screens to go in the, in the cloistered area to teach the nuns singing. Um, this was back in, gosh, early 1940s you know whatever so uh church and music was always part of their life and we grew up in that environment the church was uh, literally across the field from our house so not only did my mom and dad teach uh, piano lessons and voice lessons out of the home but also we were they were involved in our church and so us three kids i'm the middle of three uh we're always involved from the very beginning so i mean we sort of grew up with those two dynamics i had the unique uh I don't know if anybody else had this experience as an altar boy, but one of the uh, unique job descriptions of my being an altar boy was that after communion, I would then walk over to the organ in my cassock and surplus, and I would, with my boy soprano voice, I would often sing a solo. It would be the, the Bac Guno Ave Maria, or during Christmas time it was um, the, birthday of, the uh, a birthday of a king, you know, all those old chestnut pieces. And so it just, it, it it was sort of there. It was just always there um, ever since I was a young boy. And as I grew up in junior high and high school, when the, after Vatican II, and ha- Vatican II well, see, I was first grade of, when the Second Vatican Council convened. And so I, when all that explosion happened, I just sort of slid right into all that. So it's just been part of, in my bloodstream since I didn't remember.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, can I ask, this is a bit of an aside, um, you know, so you, were, you sang as a child and obviously you sing as an adult. What was your, can I ask, what was your experience of singing through your voice change? Have you? It, it was
1: interesting because it, 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 it's interesting you bring that up because um, my voice teachers over the year always had a hard time figuring out if I had a break it, you know what they call mm. about the break in the singing voice. Right. Um, when I was a, a ninth grader a freshman in high school I still was what I would call mezzo-soprano. <laughs> um, there was no trauma around it that I can remember at all. I just you know I was always a tenor a very high tenor. I wasn't a counter tenor. I mean what you know what we would call that. But I, I don't really, I not really thought about that. It just sort of happened and it happened naturally. But, but I think my voice changed perhaps a little bit later than some. Yeah, I don't really recall much of a, I don't have a lot of memory about how that happened or, or what kind of effect it had me doing that. I just kept singing all the time.
0: I just know many of us who direct children's choirs, if we're able to keep boys up to a certain point, it just gets really challenging for some of them. Yes. Some yes. can sing through it really easily, and, and others... And you know that's
1: because, you, like you say, you work with children's choirs and voice teachers know. My, my biggest concern, and I see the effects of it when, when young singers get to be in high school and, of course, early college, is that, um, that they force the voice too early to do certain things. I mean, I didn't really study voice seriously until I got to college. My mother's philosophy was you uh, just sing naturally, make sure you're using your head voice, stay away from bad habits. But like, you know, I, to this day, I know high school voice teachers or even teaching junior high age, uh, these kids singing um, serious operatic literature and they have no business doing that. Or the other temptation for young voices is the, uh, the Broadway phenomenon, you know, mm-hmm. all that chest voice, you know, that kind of belting kind of sound because kids want to emulate or, the pop, or, the, or when they emulate pop singers too. And so uh, I was very lucky in the sense that um, my mother always looked out for that with all three of us because my mother was a voice t- even though I didn't, we didn't really study. We would work on pieces of music, mm-hmm. but we didn't do a lot of vocal pedagogy at that age. And, um, and I think with children's choirs, you know, just keeping that, that head voice going and, keep, you know, and singing lightly and, and not, you know, not shouting and not all that kind of stuff. And I was, I was kept from doing that kind of stuff.
0: So I was very lucky that way. You make me feel a little better about I have two I have two teenagers, and my son he's fifteen now, and he has just sort of within the last six months made that transition from a whole period of basically not being able to phonate i mean he he wow. had a oh, very shit. rough break, and then at some point, along about when he started shaving and hit about six two dropped into this deep baritone where right. he is now you know kind of playing with the instrument, having fun with it, yes. And, so yeah. I'm just like, yay, he's singing.
1: So, oh, yeah, yeah. So. And, and again, just you know, being just being watchful of not pushing it too much. It's hard because a lot of kids don't you know, want to do that. But it. I didn't go through that. I, might, I remember even in college, my voice teachers would, would take me up the scale, and they were trying to figure out where the break was, they couldn't find one. I mean, the, I was, I, you know, the mixture from going from uh, head voice and the falsetto or chest voice, they couldn't. Okay, usually you can identify these two or three notes is where that happens. They, he was always mystified like okay where is it <laughs> i don't know what it was
0: but so before you you know shifted into church music as you know taking it on as your vocation your life work yeah. you were headed toward very serious vocal music career well, right? yeah when I, I mean i i was also a pianist and a
1: trumpet player and so and i played guitar just you know I mean, it wasn't, a, I took lessons, but I was not that accomplished technically. And so when I first went to college, at first, it, well, I mean, of course, I went through the whole thing when I was younger about being a concert pianist, laugh, 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 laugh. Um, and then when I went to college, it was like a double major, voice and uh, piano. And because I loved bands so much, because I played trumpet and French horn, I thought about being both a band and choir director in school. But then I... Came across a very fine voice teacher that got me even more. I was already always involved in musical theater, mm-hmm. and so forth. But uh, I got even more into that, even into opera, when I was in college. So I was on the vocal performance track. That was you know where I was heading. And after I, I went to Central Michigan University uh, in Michigan for two years, and during that time I was thinking about transferring. In fact, I auditioned at Northwestern and was accepted, but ended up not going. But the the idea was to do musical theater and opera. That was, you know, where I was heading. And uh, then I w- went through... I, I had some bad experiences, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, anybody who's trying to do music performance knows what a cutthroat business it can be. And, it's tough. And people can be cruel. And uh, I was very sensitive. And it was hard for me to... You know, I was successful in college. I was getting major roles and shows and things like that. And... Um, uh, hated for it, you know, and went through some difficulties with that. and then there was always this lingering thing in the back of my mind about priesthood. I thought that was there, so I took a year off and uh, uh, other than writing one little song that I when I was in ninth grade, which I talk about in the book, um, uh, during that year, I started to compose some things. I was inter- I mean I knew already about the music of the early Damians and Joe Wise and things like that, but I um, uh, I remember the nun at my parish this was 1977 going to her house and she put earthen vessels on the turntable those of you who don't know what a turntable is (laughs) (laughs) google it (laughs) um the uh and i was just amazed. I just never heard anything like that before. And, and during that year, I went to my first little workshop because composing wasn't on my screen. I mean, I, I did a little dabbling with writing tunes in there, but that wasn't really where I was uh, headed. And I, like I said, I thought I was being called to be a prete. Well, during that time, because I was still in my voice mode, still doing vocal study, I did one of these open uh, auditions uh, for a Broadway level touring company of West Side Story. Now, this is back when I, folks, this was back when I was skinny. I had a full head of dark hair, and my vocal range was, I was in much better, I had breath control. And so I, just for fun, because that's what you did, you auditioned, just for the experience of auditioning. I was offered a a two-year opportunity to sing the part of Tony in a national, uh, potentially international touring company of West Side Story. And this was about a month before I was to head to Minnesota to go to the seminary.
2: And
1: I had a a week of uh, sleepless nights of figuring out what to do. And I decided to say no to that opportunity. I just, I felt I was... There are friends who I've told the story to over the years, and some people thought I was crazy. But yeah, you wonder what would have happened if I would have pursued that, followed that. But um, I, just, I just felt like God had other plans for me. And it wasn't even necessarily about music. It was, you know, I mean, I knew music would always be a part of it because that's what I, what I knew. But then during that time, and then when I moved off to Minnesota, I started composing pieces and I went to workshops. And uh, that's sort of how, that's how it got started. You know? And then when I uh, did my own little recording with fellow seminarians and uh, produced it myself, we did the whole album in about four and a half hours and uh, mixed it in about another hour and a half because, you know, I just had enough money to do that. And then it was uh, a a couple months later that I got a phone call from Mike Jonkus, who was at, I was at the college seminary. He was at the major seminary across the street. And I knew, I had heard on Eagle's wings. I thought of Michael as a minor deity at the time. (laughs) And uh, he, he Called me, he said he heard this record that I'd made, and he wanted to get together, and that sort of started that. And then not long after that, I met Marty, and uh, the association with those two guys just tended to develop more and more. And I remember very clearly it was around 1981, maybe 80, 81, where I came here to GIA, and Bob Battistini, Mike Sambol, were here, and they wanted to hear a few more of my songs, and. They're giving me a tour of the warehouse and Bob Battistini came in smoking his cigar and <laughs> said we'd like to do a collection of music with you. And I, I You've got to be kidding me, you know. And this was around the time that I had left the seminary. I, I, I was in the Sem for two and a half years. And uh, so I just, yeah, I just, uh, that's how it kind of all got started. Maybe I went further than I was supposed to with your question, but... Uh, I never give um, terse answers. You <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, know that from editing my book because I tend to write like I talk. I'm sure there are times you're saying, okay, David, we've gone five lines here. We don't have any punctuation yet. <laughs> let's, let's put a semicolon. Too many propositional yeah, phrases. Yeah. Let's, let's end a sentence yes. and
0: start a new one. Yeah, so,
1: friends, because <laughs> it's because of her, that my, uh, that of uh, Jennifer here, that I actually sound like I'm coherent in the book at times.
0: Oh, you're plenty coherent, yeah. and the stories are part of it. I mean, that's yeah. th- the stories of how we got where we're going are all you know, yeah. they're, they're important and they I always I always enjoy because
1: w- I've done a lot of work with teenagers over the years, and I love and I'm sure you're going through this with your kids. Um, is that um, when they they have their whole life figured out? You know, I'm going to go here to college. I'm going to you know graduate, get my master's, I have two point five kids, and I'm going to you know do all and, and I just smile and say, okay you you go right ahead and think that it's probably it, it might but i mean it, it i'm not doing now that i what i thought i would be doing back then you know i knew it would be music in some way but that's about it you know?
0: but at the same time when I mean, you had your experience of you know growing up surrounded by music and your experience of the seminary and going deeper into the theology and spirituality yeah, yeah, and yeah. could you have become who you are if you hadn't had both of those deep yeah. foundational yeah. pieces. I mean, it's, a, it's
1: all building blocks, it's really true.
0: No regret, that's why
1: I have no regrets. People will say, oh my God, two and a half years in the seminary and it didn't happen. I said, well, yeah, but so many other things happened. It's true. I mean, it was it was not what I originally entered thinking it would be happening, but.
0: So most of, most of us think of you, when we think David Haas, we think composer, which is of course absolutely accurate. Um, just a brief story of my own, um, I was at, uh, at Old St. Pat's Parish in downtown Chicago and for one of our weddings, we do many weddings there, and I heard, well, David Haas is a friend of the family and he's going to come and he'll be the cantor, and um, I was like, oh, wow, and I had met you before, sure. but yeah. uh, that was my first experience. It kind of struck me. It's like, okay, David Haas, he's the composer, but he's also, I mean, my thought was, yeah, he's very much one of us. That whole thing of, you know, we sat down, you know, you're doing what you do, I'm doing what I do at the piano. We could do that little quick thing of eye contact and each know exactly what was yes. going to come next. We could sort of, you know, we'd be going along, we could sort of flash an eyeball out to the congregation and see that we needed another verse of the communion song. Yeah, we,
1: we, just, well, we, we went through the same um, um, intelligence training. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we, we knew the decoder ring of how to, you know, how to, <laughs> how, to how pastor musicians have to operate, yeah. yeah.
0: So I mean, through your time as a composer, you've worked in parishes, and you've yes. you've been yes. you've been in the trenches. Right. You don't just kind of compose I was full time parish
1: ministry for at two parishes over a period of two years, and part time many times uh, before and after that. Yeah, so I and I think that's when people invite me to come do workshops and things. Uh, you know, I think it it can't just be because you've written music, but but you have like a sense of a context of what they they're dealing with. You have some experience what it's like to, you know, work with. Uh, priests and choirs and congregations and all that goes with that, yeah.
0: You know, it's funny, the very first time I ever heard a David Haas song, this was, I was in college, Um, it was shortly after, remember that first thin green teal colored gather book came out, Mm -hmm. Um, and a good friend and I at Catholic University, I don't know if you know Norm Gowan, he's still composing a lot. he and I were good friends, and we were both kind of beginning to dabble in composing at that point, and we led one of the campus ministry groups. I think all we had was glory and praise one, which is full of wonderful things, but yeah. at a certain point, it's, it's a thin book. <laughs> we didn't yeah. have much. And um, I remember, and it was, it was very sad, too. It was the, the funeral of a seminarian who had been a friend of ours, and so we went to Lee's funeral and had never heard any of your music or any of Marty's music. And in, this, in his funeral mass, within the same service, was We Will Rise Again and Blessed Are They. We were singing these, and I still remember Norm and I were standing there in the pews singing these songs, and then we'd kind of look at each other like, oh my God, this is great. <laughs> and and, it, and it, they were easy to sing, and it was a new sound that we hadn't really sure. heard. And it's interesting, though, because, I mean, everybody knows Blessed Are They, we Will Rise Again, it's, it's honestly, that's one of my dearest of all of your songs. Yeah. I love that song so much. That one, it's still used and people know it. But, you know, if, if someone had asked me that day, which of these two songs, I probably would have said We Will Rise Again is going to be, everybody's going to know this song, This, you know. Yeah. And Blessed Are They, everybody knows Blessed Are They, you know, mm-hmm. denomination's all over the place. And and yeah, it's just, it's really hard to, hard to pinpoint. And yet We Will Rise Again is still, again, another old St. Patrick's story. I tell too many of those. Um, They have, Old St. Pat's has this huge uh, Chicago Marathon group, the Crossroads Runners, that raises huge amounts of money for charities every year. And every year in the Chicago Marathon, they run on Sunday morning and really a nightmare to get to mass that day because the the marathon route goes right by right. the church. And you have DJs out there and people are cheering and waving flags. And... But then that evening at the 5 p.m. mass, they have every year what's called the blessing of the blisters. And <laughs> the entire, you know oh. any, any crossroads runner or anyone else who ran who is still vertical, which is a lot, every year they come to that mass. And every year, forever and probably forever in the future, we will run and not grow weary. Oh, sure. For our God will be our strength. Sure. The will Fly okay, like yeah. the eagle, we will rise again. We sing that every single year. Oh my goodness. You just gave we sing me that song I every that. year. Blessing and of the blisters. The blessing of I the think, blisters. I think yeah. cantors
1: should have an annual diocesan celebration for, for their vocal <laughs> stress. Oh. Blessing of the blisters. Yeah. Oh my goodness. What a beautiful story. Yeah, Thank it's, you. We
0: love that. We oh my love goodness. that. So, yeah. again, that's one of my favorite songs ever. Yeah. Thank you.
2: I am strength to the wind.
1: like that one too that was a um, piece that was uh, mercy hospital in pittsburgh used to have a program called the ministry of healing and they actually had a full-time liturgist not just musician The, the the sister who was the president of the hospital at the time during those years uh was very visionary and she believed that liturgy and the prayer life of the church was part of the mission of this hospital. And like, we walk into the lobby of the hospital, it's always in the liturgical colors of the season. They had a chapel, I think it's still there. They had a, a tracker pipe organ. Um, yeah. And uh, I don't know if you know David Dreher, he was Cantor in residence there. And they had, I mean, they, John Bouchem designed the chapel, beautiful ambry with the oil of the sick and everything. And they would host workshops. This is at a hospital. And uh, I and they had other people over the years, like, you know, Marty went there and the other folks. But um, I wrote We Will Rise Again for the Sacrament of the Sick for uh, that, mm. that community originally. But, yeah, I like that piece, too. Yeah. I love that story. And, they, <laughs> and you still do it for We that. still
0: do it, yeah, every year, every you, year.
1: You got you to video that sometime. I would love to see that, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> we'll make it happen. Yeah. We'll okay. make it happen. Can I ask, have you ever had the experience of, you know, if there's a piece that you've written and you do it with a congregation and, you know, you think you have it all set and you know what it's going to be and then you do it with the people and you go, oh, wait, no, I, I need to change that oh, or I'm going to fix that. All the so time. That... Yeah, I
1: mean, um, there's certain pieces. I'm trying to think of one, one specific one comes to mind. It's also happened in the recording studio sometimes when we're recording a, a new piece, but, you know, you, you teach a, a piece of music and you do it for two or three weeks and this phrase, they always want to go to that note, even though you lean into the microphone singing the note that you wrote, and you and you just keep it. But they that tells you something, mm-hmm. that maybe the piece needs to go to that note. <laughs> Meaning that in terms of they help you write and edit, that's one of the things where I think why I always say to liturgical composers, you know, younger ones or emerging ones, that this has to be tested. You know, you can't just write in a vacuum. I, I would say, you know, 98% of the music I've written had I at least was given some test drive somewhere, you know, because you, but yeah, it happens all the time. The experience of doing it in different, uh, with different I, not only your own parish, but um, giving it to colleagues and getting their feedback, how that piece worked or didn't work, or maybe this phrase, you need to rethink this, or, you know, so yes. The, the short answer is, yes, it happens quite yeah. a bit. And it sh- I think it should happen. It's, it's very corrective.
0: Yeah, I guess if we're writing for the assembly, it's important. You know, the assembly really yeah. knows a lot more than we do about what they can say. Right. There's certain jumps and in
1: certain intervals. And then, and then there's the weird thing that sometimes a piece that worked at one place just does not work here. Now, why is that? And that's kind of hard to analyze. You know, um, Certain pieces like, yeah, they just sort of sang itself. And they you know went where it went to go and then you tried somewhere else And it's like why isn't it working here and I don't know it doesn't happen often but it does happen sometimes
0: I think a lot of church musicians find that you know that's a big phenomenon not just with the music we write but you know you can have been at two or three parishes and this this song or oh, this hymn was totally. a favorite everywhere I've been and you go to your new place and it's a lead balloon and you have no idea why right, just right. some something about the chemistry doesn't well, work Father's Yellow
1: Nose said once years ago, that there are two types of music, music I like and music I don't like. And some people just don't like it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they don't, I mean, I, and, and it also, that also applies to certain pieces of music that you think, God, this would be too hard. Yet they say Eagle's Wings is the perfect example of that. It's an octave and a fourth. You know, the verse is a G add nine chord with a C sharp. And Michael has said, you know, when he wrote that, he never had any intention or expectation that the people would sing the verses. They nail that C sharp every time. Why is it? Well, first of all, it's it's beautifully written, it's well crafted. But if they love it, they'll sing it. They'll sing That's it. why I get into arguments with people about range. Well that note's too high for a kind. Of, not if they love it. You know, we have been told I get this all the time, that E flat's too high. Well Sometimes you do the song too slow, and so the upward motion, the getting there is too. But some of it is um, just, if they like the piece, I mean, I think of I Am the Bread of Life by Suzanne Toulon. Oh, yeah. You know, if they love it, they're going to sing it. They're going to do everything they can. Now, you've got to pay attention to things like Tessitura and things like that. But in, in the end, it's, it, what, it's what grabs you. I would think, you know, even with publishers, you know, I know, I have composer colleagues who sent a piece of music to um, one, one of the publishers and, and they didn't take to it. And then the next publisher did and it became a hit. You know, it just, it's so subjective,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, of what, why is it about a piece that grabs people or doesn't grab people? There are some exceptions of places, pieces that seem to work almost everywhere, but who knows? I mean, well, we could, if you can bottle that and figure that out. I think people are need and are attracted to a good melody. Mm-hmm. I think that's very important. Um, but And something that can stick to their ribs for a while. Eagle's Wings was written almost 50 years ago and it's still, and in, of course, in the history of Western music, I mean, we can go back to, uh, you know, what, why is it that, you know, Oh, Sacred Head and Yesu Joy and the Ave Maria, because they're just they're just really well written. You know, if I have one or two pieces that are still remembered, by the time I'm in the nursing home, you know, that's, that's a blessing. <laughs> and then some pieces work for a moment. Like, there's a special occasion, it's an anniversary of the parish, or whatever it is, and you write a piece of music for that, and it works there, has no, <laughs> other, you know, it has no other lasting power than that. And, and I think when you write ritual music, that's part of what it is. We're not necessarily writing music that's going to be immortalized. Marty puts it really well, one of the images he uses, is that you're, we're basically building chairs, he once said. You know, we're building a chair, and you want people to feel comfortable sitting in the chair, because the piece of music is for the people to sing, and uh, it isn't necessarily something that you're gonna listen to on your stereo when you're sitting by the fire, necessarily. You know, people, you know, if I wanna listen to music purely for the aesthetic, I'll listen to Appalachian Spring by Aaron Copland, or the Bach B Minor Mass, or the, Mm -hmm. or pictures at an exhibition, you know. This isn't music that necessarily intended to be encased or enshrined forever. If some of it lasts for a while longer, that's, a beautiful blessing, but I don't think I don't think that's what our, our vocation is to do.
0: We'll stop there for now. Again, please return in two weeks for part two of this conversation with David Haas, the spiritual and work-life wellness of the pastoral musician, which is something I don't think any of us get 100% right. I know I don't. So please do tune in then. And we started today's podcast episode with the very first liturgical song David ever wrote. So we'll conclude with the song he completed just about the same time as his book, I Will Bring You Home, was being finished. This is I Will Walk With You.
3: I am here with you, all who live in anguish, the fearful, the lonely, all who are afraid. I'll make new your spirit, tend your deepest hurt, with water flowing endlessly in love.
2: I will come to heal you and lead you in comfort, all of you who mourn. All you near and far, I will grace you with my peace. will come to you and refresh your shattered dreams and free you from the poison of wasted guilt and shame.
3: I will hold your story
2: and honor your journey with hope that will transform your grief and
3: Amidst the storm and terror, I will strengthen you with courage, and mend your tattered heart. I will give you songs to sing when all seems bleak and hopeless, with music of forgiveness and joy. My beloved, my child
0: For more information, including details about the music you heard on today's podcast, please visit our website at singamen.giamusic.com. Sing Amen is produced and supported by GIA Publications.